everybody, and welcome back to Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. Yes, that's right. I'm back, your ginger host with the most, the green twinkle in his eye, Mackenzie. And I'm joined <laughs> once again oh. by Canadian B. Arthur, director extraordinaire, the lady of Muskoka, Autumn Smith. Oh, there was a new there was a new descriptor in there. The oh, lady. I know, I threw one in there. I think it could be the Madam of Muskoka. No, uh, that has weird connotations. Yeah, Never mind. We'll go with the lady. <laughs> we'll go with the lady of Muskoka. <laughs> yes, we are here today, episode three of season two. We've done Fiddler, we've done Chicago. Now autumn, we're hopping across the pond. We're heading into what land are we heading into, Autumn? Where are we going this week? We are heading into the slums of my favorite city in the world, London, England. With what, Autumn? Where are we going this week? Oliva. I uh, wish Oliva. I could get that low all the time. Oliva, Oliva. Oliva, Oliva. What will he do in this terrible stew? He will rule the day. Somebody name him. There you go. There you go. Yes, that's right. We're doing Oliver. And that's not all, ladies and gentlemen. We are proud to announce that this is marks the first episode where we have a guest with us. Please give a warm welcome, round of applause to the one and only Lynn Slotkin. Hello, Lynn. Morning. How are you? How are you? Both of you. Yes, that's right. You can hear both of us. We worked, we worked the systems. We got all of us here on the line. It's exciting, let me say it is very exciting. Lynn, we are so happy to have you and honored that you are our first guest of the podcast. Totally. Thanks so much. Thanks for, for inviting me. Anytime, anytime. Sure. So Lynn, you, you sent along your bio because I asked for it so, so we can yes. make sure he knows who you are. So in case you don't know who Lynn is in the world of Canadian theater, Lynn, you, uh, like me, are from York. Uh, you got an honors BA in the fine arts with specialized in drama studies, history, and theory of criticism, which I don't think they even offered that when I was there because I would never take in theory, theory and criticism. So a little bit more about you, Lynn. Uh, your reviews and articles have been published in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, Performers Magazine, American Theatre Magazine, iWeekly, How Theatre Educates, Orbit, Mystery Scene Magazine, uh, the Canadian Jewish News, uh, the London Free Press and the Hollywood Reporter. Wow, I yeah. am. You are all over, Lynn. Like you. I'm all over. Yeah. I love I it. You worked for the CBC for a while. Am oh, I correct? Yes. I, I worked for the CBC for ten years. I did um, reviews for the Going Home Show here and now. And mm -hmm. they decided that the demographic had changed, and so they got rid of all of the reviews. So now I, I knew my, I do my theater reviews now for for um, uh, Friday morning, a CI a CIUT Friday morning, which is the radio station out of U of T, and it's probably one of the last community radio stations in the province. So I'm. Wow. I'm happy to do it. They're wonderful. Uh, we're sort of on hiatus while the university is closed, but there you have it. I love it. And you do have the online newsletter, the Slotkin Letter, yep. uh, which chronicles your theater going in Toronto as well as internationally. So this has been a resource for us as well as other actors, directors, artistic directors, and I love how you put it 
in your bio civilians who are keenly interested in theater. I read all of your reviews. Me too. Oh my God. I think you're very uh, generous. Yeah. Oh, I do. I do. And I have received many reviews from you and I've always used them to explore my work and to think about it because, you know, directors get lost in a bubble and they become very consumed in the work and we need outside perspectives. And, you know, we have to know what our audience is seeing. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. So Thank you. You're welcome. I agree. So yeah, I mean, like Lynn, we are so happy to have you. Like you, uh, you have such a breadth of knowledge. I remember us going over to London together for the Curious Voyage with Oscar's Free. Autumn, you said Lynn, and you met when you had your um, theater company back in the day, your Irish repertory company. That's right. That's right. It's a mm -hmm. long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Through, we're ready to head into the land of Oliva. And I chose this musical for us to cover this week. I know Autumn's shaking her head at me. She got Witches of Eastwick. I got Oliver. <laughs> um, it's fine. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. I mind you, I could have put, we both chose it, but I, I put this down as my choice. So we kept the rotating going back and forth. Um, but I chose it firstly because this was the first musical I ever did professionally where I was the late orphan with Talk is Free Theater. And if you want the full story of what that was, we talked all about it in episode one of the show when I was doing my very first introductions. But long story short, I was the orphan that appeared in just the Food Glorious Food and Oliver scene. And my whole shtick of the character was that I got to be the one to run in late and, and, during, during the song. So really I got like half a number because they cut me from the first part of it. God. <laughs> But it was great. I loved it. And then, but yeah, so, and then the second reason why it shows it is just because the music of the show, like, it's gorgeous and so haunting. And the characters are so gray. It's great. They stick with you because they make you think. They're not one-dimensional fluff characters. Like, Lionel Bart did a really great job, along with Peter Coe, of creating this show that really just... Once it's got his claws in you, it sticks with you. Like even my dad, who, 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 who's a hockey sports farm guy, he saw the movie back in the 60s, like 68, mm -hmm. 69, he saw it and it stuck with him. Like he remembered it. That's why when, he, when the audition notice came up for Talk is Free, he was really excited about me going and potentially being in it because this was a musical mm -hmm. he knew mm -hmm. and remembered. So even people who don't know musicals really well know this show like it is one of these multi-generational pieces of theater where people just know it so yeah that's why i chose it um, i'm glad you chose it because if you hadn't have chosen it i would have i was about to say i know you would have but it's for different reasons it's basically i love this because it's a love letter in a way to london yes my favorite city <laughs> mine too oh so, and i'm a huge fan of charles dickens so that's, that's a much longer conversation for later. <laughs> Perfect. And Lynn, so basically how this all happened was um, I, I sent you our list of shows that we had coming up for the next two seasons. And I said, mm -hmm. which ones do you want to be on? And Oliver was one of your first uh, choices that you, mm -hmm. that, 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 that you said, I really want to do it. So why was this musical the one you really wanted to come and guest on? Because Oliver was the very first show I ever saw. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. All I Brew was the first show I ever saw. My mother took my sister and I. Mm -hmm. It was a Saturday matinee. Mm -hmm. It was November. Mm -hmm. We it was we wore galoshes. It was not snowing. And we were lit. So we we go in the they let us in during mm -hmm. the over of food glorious food and walking down the aisle of the O'Keefe Center mm -hmm. and we're I mean we used to be going right to the stage because the tickets were GG on the aisle. I couldn't believe this. Oh wow. I've never been in I'd never been in the theater before, and I'm watching this swirl of activity. I'm also looking at Willoughby Goddard, who played Mr. Bubble, giving us the evil eye as we're walking down that song. And we sat there, my sister and I and my mother, on the aisle, mm -hmm. and I was transfixed from that second on. You mm -hmm. have this incredible Sean Benny set for which yes. got the tone award for it it evolved it showed various locations in in ottoman my favorite city it mm -hmm. it went down to the docks it was the east end of london it was the slums etc and i was stunned by absolutely everything to do with that musical mm -hmm. um so that was the first one i ever saw when it finished i was in a black depression oh. i remember go go we, we went home i sat in the den for an hour with the lights off i didn't know what hit me and i thought i i you know this euphoria this fantastic feeling i had from this show i want this back i don't know how to do it what am i gonna do oh yeah i know what i can do i can go again i can go to the theater again and that was my beginning all my mother had to do was take me once, and that uh, my life ended right there and began and exploded open. I love that. That is like the classic epitome of a kid getting bit by the theater bug story. I love that. Lynn, that story just warmed my heart. I love this. Like, <laughs> it's one of my biggest smiles right now. Now, for right? anybody who doesn't know what the heck Oliver is, uh, I'll give a quick quote quick plot rundown because you know, ahead. some Get people her. haven't read the classic novel I, I i know like my dad had never read the book before seeing the movie and the movie was his first experience with it so yeah here we go okay so the musical is based on a novel as we said by, of oliver twist by charles dickens uh the musical tells the tale of misadventures of an orphan named oliver twist uh his story begins when he asks mr bundle uh, bumble bumble mr bumble uh Please, sir, I want some more. Which then catapults him into all his adventures, such as he gets sold to the Sourberries Funeral Parlor. Uh, he then escapes from them after suffering abuse. Uh, he, makes him, he makes his way to London, where he meets the Artful Dodger, uh, who then leads him into London's underworld of pickpockets, and they're led by their leader um, of Fagin. And so uh, basically they befriend him. He befriends another member of the crew. Her name is Nancy. And she is the kind of surrogate mother slash older sister figure to, to the boys. And she is also the uh, partner of Bill Sykes. Uh, mm -hmm. So 
Yeah. So, so that's them. Uh, and then Oliver gets sent out for his first day on the job, job being air quotes, meaning he's going to go out and try and pickpocket people. And he gets arrested. And quickly, uh, Mr. Brownlow, the man who has his pocket picked, saves Oliver and takes him home with him instead. Um, and so away they go. And Dodger reports this back to uh, Fagan and Bill Sykes. And they are worried Oliver's going to squeal on them. He, so they decide they're going to lure him out with Nancy and they abduct him, bring him back to the lair. Nancy has a change of heart. She goes and tries to get help with Mr. Brownlow. Bill Sykes finds out. He kills her, bludgeons her to death. Very tragic. Uh, and then Bill Sykes kidnaps Oliver. The chase ensues, uh, which leads ultimately to Bill Sykes being shot and killed. Uh, and then uh, Oliver goes home with Mr. Brownlow. And unlike in the, in the book where Fagin dies, uh, via execution in the musical, Fagin gets to, to happily dance into the sunrise. And that's it. That's the show in a nutshell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That very con condensed two minute description. The show has so much more going on on it, but that's kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, Autumn, is the perfect segue into you. Oh, yeah, we're on, we're on to you because now we're going to talk about the production team because this is once again a new production team. We've done a very good job this season of featuring new production teams. We yeah. A lot of people last season, but we're still finding new people this season. So we did a lot on. of Fosse, Weber, and Sondheim last season. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we definitely yeah. had a lot of Sondheim and Weber this season. Yeah, this season we got a much bigger mix of people. <laughs> people. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to start with the original novelist. Okay. Because without the original novel, there would be no Oliver. That is true. Um, so we know that Oliver Twist was the material that Oliver, the musical is based on, is written by Charles Dickens. And Dickens is one of those um, writers, uh, like, he and Shakespeare are the only two writers in the English canon to have time periods named after them. So you have yeah. Shakespearean times and you have Dickensian times. Mm -hmm. So he defined, he defined a whole period. Yeah. Um, he was born in Portsmouth. Right. Uh, <clears throat> he left school to work in a factory when his father was incarcerated in a debtor's prison. Oh, uh, which has ties to Little Dorrit, um, one of my favorites. Um, <clears throat> even though he had a lack of formal education, he edited a journal for 20 years, wrote 15 novels, five novellas, and hundreds of short stories. His success, his literary success, began in 1836 with a serial publication of the Pickwick Papers, and then he went on to pen A Christmas Carol, mm -hmm. Tale of Two Cities, mm. Great Expectations, David Copperfield, Bleak House, Little Dorrit, and of course, Oliver Twist. And Mystery uh, of Edwin Drood. Or the and Mer Mystery of Edwin Drood, which we'll have to talk about at some point. He, did, he didn't finish that. No, he died before he finished. Nobody knows who, who the murderer is of that story, which is, makes it a great musical, because that, that's a... Pick, uh, pick your choice musical. I love it. Choose your own adventure, as it were. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he 
pioneered the serial publication of narrative fiction, became the dominant Victorian mode for novel publication. Right. So, and he, I love Charles Dickens because he sees the world with an empathetic lens. He is able to just share what Victorian London was about in the same way that William Hogarth was able to share his time period. Mm -hmm. um, they were satirists of the time and um, they, really, they really understood their environment, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, later um, yeah. in this episode. Perfect. Lynn, is there anything you want to add? Um, well, uh, Autumn was very kind to Mr. Dickens, because while he talked about his world and he put you in that role, he was too kind to his wife, who he treated like, when well, he treated her badly, mm -hmm. he took away her children oh. um, because he wanted to go and live with his mistress. At one point, the mistress was living in the house with them. So he <laughs> took away the children and he went and moved somewhere else with the kids and the mistress and the wife pined away. So, you know, it's one of those wonderful, wonderful, confusing conflicting things that the guy was a genius mm -hmm. but he was a shit can we say that he's a shit yeah anyway, yeah, yeah. but, I, but say that. you know you cannot you cannot deny his brilliance as a writer putting you in that world mm -hmm. uh giving you this rich material i'm with autumn he you know he's he's brilliant yeah. Yeah. It's interesting looking at, at geniuses and their complex nature. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like I think, to be, I think to be a genius, there's, there's something, there's a, ultimately there's a side of your personality that borders on like sociopathic behavior. Mm -hmm. So uh, that doesn't surprise me. I did not know that about him, but so many people refer to him as this, you know, this person who has an empathetic, Lens. I'm gonna have well, to go do more reading now. He was just who paid his dues, but there was that other side of him mm -hmm. that was bizarre. You know, people think that he had an inordinate um, uh, attachment to a, 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 a sister, and he loved his sister-in-law which was a bit kinky. She was living in the house too. She oh. died in his arms. Autumn, get get on this. I mean, she died in his arms and he never forgot it. And so in his work, there are usually young women who die at the age of 17. Whoa, this guy was... Woo! Perfect. Um, so the, the musical is predominantly due to one person. Yeah. That is Lionel Bart. Mm -hmm. And Lionel Bart is a British writer and composer. Mm -hmm. um, he was born Lionel Beichleiter. Uh, he was the youngest of seven surviving children. Um, his father was a master tailor that worked out of a garden shed in Stepney. Um, the family had escaped the pogroms in the Ukraine. So before fleeing, before fleeing to, before fleeing to London. 
he was an accomplished painter. And at the age of six, a teacher told his parents that he was a musical genius. He started his songwriting career uh, in amateur theater, which is great. I love that he, he like took a bite out of that uh, before growing into what he became. Um, so he worked with the International Youth Center in 1952 and then went on to join London's Unity Theater, um, where he wrote songs for the 1953 production of Turn It Up. And he also, this is fun, uh, having just worked on a new version of Cinderella, he mm. did an agitprop version of Cinderella for, uh, the Unity Theater. Huh. And this production, this production, Steal My Heart, uh, he was talent scouted by Jerry Raffles and our dear Joan Littlewood. Uh -huh. And yes, this was the best find. I had forgotten it after reading Joan Littlewood's biography. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he he was adopted into the theater workshop family and uh his first professional musical actually joan littlewood called called lionel our beloved impossible lionel so loved him but uh, he was different but he was a genius so there you go he his first musical was lock up your daughters based on the 18th century play rape upon rape by Henry Fielding. Okay. Nice light material. Yeah. Um, and then following that, uh, Littlewood uh, and the theater workshop uh, produced Things Ain't What They Used To Be, mm -hmm. uh, which was noted for its authentic Cockney accents. Oh. And for bringing an end to censorship of British theater, which was huge during that time. Mm -hmm. So that was that was the piece that kind of broke broke the system. And then he went on to write Oliver. Um, after Oliver, uh, which I'm sure Mac you'll get into, yeah. uh, he worked on two musicals, Blitz, which at the time was the most expensive musical ever done in the West End. Um, but it included the hit song Far Away, which was a hit for Shirley Bassey. And then he also did Maggie May. Um, and then he started to go into decline. He became addicted to LSD. He was a terrible alcoholic. Um, and his last couple of productions really tanked him. So he lost all of his, his money. Um, in at one point he sold all of the the rights including the rights to oliver which he sold to uh an entertainer max bygraves for 350 pounds mac i know max later sold them for 250,000 pounds but by the end of his life lionel bart said i have lost a million pounds because of that mistake yeah, um but he was he was a depressive uh, alcoholic uh, who went into incredible bankruptcy um, for a very long time, and he eventually, um, after like he had a prolific career. I'm not saying that he didn't do that. But he wrote 
very popular songs for Cliff Richard, Shirley Bassey, et cetera, et cetera. He was a pop writer as well, right? Yeah. Um, he, he died of liver disease, he did, of liver cancer, and was um, in 1999. It's really weird. There's a lot of coincidences in this for me because I moved to Golders Green where he was buried in 1999. Wow. Like, like three months after he had his, uh, he was cremated there. Wow. Like, what? So, um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about Lionel the Lord Impossible Lionel. I love that. Um, uh, Peter Coe was the original di uh, director of the stage version. Very important. Um, directed a ton of stuff, musicals, dramas, operas across several continents mm -hmm. uh, over a long period of time. Uh, his first London success uh, came with Lock Up Your Daughters, which was written by Bart. Uh, mm -hmm. And he also did the Australian and Broadway productions of Oliver. Mm -hmm. um, his operatic credits include The Love of Three Oranges, The Angel of Fire, and Ernani. Mm -hmm. uh, and in 1981, uh, Peter Coe received the Tony Award nomination as Best Director for A Life. And in 1982, he won the award for his revival of Othello. So there you go. <coughs> um, I have, I'm going to have to look at a life. Yeah. Um, that, that's you think cool. Oliver would have gotten him the, 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 the award, but apparently not. No. Anyway, he directed, he, he had a prolific, he had a prolific career. He directed um, in the West End on Broadway and for the Chichester uh, Festival Theater, who that theater company is fantastic. They mm. were the ones that brought back Nicholas Nickleby. Let's say that epic, ties back to what we Yes. Uh, also written by one Charles Dickens. Indeed. So that, All right. that is our, that is, that is the summation. All right. So I think now we can segue into production history. So light your cigarettes, everyone. Okay. And mm. boy, oh boy, after I reread my book, uh, called Oliver, a, a, a Dickensian musical, where they chronicle the, the history of making this show. I, ha I, I have copious notes from it. So here we mm -hmm. go. So the musical, first, it's based on, on the book, but the other place where it gets a lot of inspiration is from the 1948 David Lean version starring Alec Guinness. That's where, if you're gonna try and figure out where did Lionel Bart get most of his plot points from, it's that one. Because if you watch that movie, you'll see, because I actually went and watched it this week just to kind of get a better idea of what the heck uh, is this. Um, and, and you watch it in like the fine life reprise scene. I won't stand by and see you done, Bill. Why, Nancy, you're wonderful tonight. Such talent, what an actress. Am I? Well, take care, I don't overdo it, because if I do, I'm going to put my mouth on some of you and I don't care my own face. You? Do you know who you are and what you are? Oh, yeah, I know all about that. You don't have to tell me. I'll find one for the boy and make a friend of you. Lord help me, I am, and I wish I'd been shot dead dead before lending an hand and bringing him back here. Because after tonight, he's a liar and a thief and all that's bad. And ain't that enough for you without beating him after death? Come, come, civil words, Nancy, civil words. Civil words? Yeah, you deserve them from me, don't you? Because I was out of the streets for you when I was a child of his age. And I've been in the same train, the same sim, 
me for 15 years, and don't you forget it! Well, what if you have? It's your living, ain't it? Come here! Some living, some living! What you deserve, you get! No getting all given! Must we have murders yet? There'll be murders, there'll be terror, such as you've never seen. No violence, watch your place, no violence. Where are there? Ain't no in between. No violence in life! You don't mind making a mate a statement? It's a fine line! Fine line, my life is safe. We don't mind keeping the angels waiting. It's a fine line! is almost verbatim from the 48 film version. So you wanted to get away, my dear? Did you? I wanted to get assistance? Called for the police? Did you? We'll soon cure you of that, my young master. Don't take it. You've got the boy. What more do you want? Let him be. Let him be, or I'll put that mark on some of you that'll send me to the gallows before me time. Why, Nancy, you're more clever than ever tonight. Ha <laughs> ha. You're acting beautiful, dear. Am I? Then take care I don't overdo it. You'll be the worse for it, Fagin, if I do. What do you mean by this? You're a nice one, a pretty subject for the boy to make a friend of. So help me, I am. I wish I'd been struck dead in the street before lending hand to bring him here. He's a thief, a liar, a devil, and all that's bad from this night on. Isn't that enough for the old wretch without blows? Come, come, Sykes, we must have civil words, civil words, Bill. Civil words, civil words, you villain. Yes, you deserve them from me. I thief for you when I was a child not half his age. And I thief for you ever since, don't you know it? And if you have, it is your living. Aye, it is. It is my living. On the cold, wet, dirty streets of my home. And you're the wretch that drove me to them long ago. And that'll keep me there, day and night, day and night. And and night. Much have you say much more? Mm-hmm. It's very close. Lynn, um, Lynn, have you seen that version with Alec? No, I haven't. I saw Oliver, and I almost never wanted to see any movie of it. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to see another show of it. I didn't want to spoil that first time. Right. But I will go and look up that movie. I will, you know, I can do that because I'm an older person now, and I can. I'm tough. <laughs> it's 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 very it's it's a black and white. Um, it's very it's like an hour and ten minutes. Like the, like it's very it's a very lean adaptation. But really, where good. did you, where did you see it? YouTube, YouTube. I'll send you the link because I sent it to Autumn too. Thank you very much. You should also watch the BBC version that they did with Timothy Spall. Oh, my God. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, both those versions are great. But, yeah, so so that's where the inspiration came in uh, first uh, is from uh, the... The, the film, but then the the thing that sparked Lionel Bart's wanting to do the musical is a chocolate bar, funny enough, because back in the day, there was an Oliver Twist chocolate bar, and on the cover of the chocolate bar is a colorful depiction of Oliver doing the bowl in hand outreach, mm-hmm. very cheery picture, though, if you actually look at the chocolate bar. Yeah. But, um, but he saw that and thought, ah, there's a project I could do. So 
doing that and then and and then watching the film that was very popular that 48 film was really popular to people and it really kind of set the tone of what people thought of this book with it's 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 one it's one of, it's one it's been considered one of the definitive tellings of the story so put those two together and that got bart started on the project He's first started alluding to the project in 1959. Uh, he first envisioned the musical as a star vehicle for one of his people he wrote music for, Tommy Steele, who was kind of like a teen heartthrob of the day. Mm-hmm. However, the hurdle for him was that he was, uh, Tommy Steele was too old to play the Artful Dodger, and he was too young to play Fagin. So there was no real starring role for Tommy Steele, and Bart really wanted to make this mega musical. So... That idea went out the window. Bye, Tommy. Yeah, but sorry, Tommy, you're out. Um, <laughs> so instead, uh, he decided to make it just a straightforward musical, but he couldn't get backing because everybody kept thinking of the 48 film, which is dark and depressing, and musicals were very light and happy, and musical comedy was big at that time. And then you got this guy going, I want to do a Dickensian musical. About, uh, about this plight of this poor orphan boy. Everybody was like, not really going for it. But the, but the person who did go for it was the Cameron Macintosh of his day, Donald Allerby. And he was the one that ultimately backed the project, giving, giving a total budget of 15,000 pounds, which he made up of various backers. It so, was um, Donald Albury. Albury, thank you. Uh, and they they use they they name theaters after him. It's where the Noel Coward Theater is now. So he was the one that got the ball rolling. He's the one that was like, okay, I, I, we can do something with this. So the first thing he thought was, if we're gonna do a big musical, we gotta go American with the director because they're the ones that are creating these big mega musicals of the day. So he reached out to his American counterpart, David Merrick. And Merrick was like, uh, sorry, all the big musical directors are all booked up right now. So no go. So the next person they turned to was Joan Littlewood, because both Bart and uh, Albury had worked with her, but it was decided not to be her because she has a much more Brechtian abstract style that wouldn't that Bart just felt wouldn't work with what he was wanting for the show no she's uh, she's a little too dark I hate to say that it's it would have been a very different show she was yeah. she you know what I love about Joan Littlewood is she really was the mother of devised theater oh yeah yeah which which is huge now oh, um but yeah. it's yeah, but so ultimately it was like, no, so she's out. So then it, so then they turned to the other person they both worked with, which was Peter Coe. He was the, the last other person. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so he was the choice because uh, they, oh, they were both like, okay, well, we worked with him. We know him. Let's go with him. So sure enough, off they go to create the show. So the original title of the musical uh, was going to be Oliver Twist. Then that transitioned in the second draft of, of the script to being, oh, Oliver, exclamation point. And then that was shortened to Oliver, exclamation point. So three different versions and, and each of the scripts were refined and refined and refined. But the first one was going to be a three-act 
musical, which, which we'll get into. But the first big hurdle that Bart really wanted to focus on was finding solutions to the anti-Semitism that he found in the original source material, particularly around the character of Fagin. His solution to this was he thought, I'm going to lighten the character of Fagin, make him more comedic, lovable, make him more of a, a friendly kind of character versus a conniving kind of you know, mustache twirling depiction of that that you'd seen in all the other versions. He also took away the plot point that in the book, it's Fagin who kind of incites Bill Sykes to murdering Nancy that was excised from the character, (laughs) as well as making sure he survived at the end. He didn't get executed. So those were kind of his ways of trying to combat the anti-Semitism. He also was a really big proponent of casting Jewish actors throughout the show. So that's why Ron Mooney, was cast as the original Fagin, and uh, Georgina Brown was cast as Nancy. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to go into this now? Because this is a very interesting conversation. <laughs> I think we're here, just because I, I know a lot of people, when they think of Oliver, they do think of, the, 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 there's those anti-Semitic uh, thoughts that go along with this, so I think we do have to address it. So let's start unpacking this thing, because as we've talked about autumn like the character is very like bart did a really good job of lightening the character making him not just don't think it i don't think it's just due to bart i i really don't i've done my dramaturgical due diligence on this Mm -hmm. and dickens was looking at the world around him and fagin is actually based he based this character on the uh, the criminal ilke solomon whose arrest was highly publicized at that time during the Victorian era. And for me, I, look, in in the novel, he is referred to as the Jew. Mm -hmm. We're going to put it out there. That is what he is referred to. Um, It was, it it was a different time. We did not know. Looking, we're looking at it through a contemporary lens right now. Mm -hmm. But when Dickens wrote it, that was the vernacular of the time, whether it was right or wrong, that was just what was. And people addressed him like he, he was going to sell a house to a Jewish couple. And she said, I don't want to buy from you. I think you're a horrible human being who, you know, slanders people. And he went and he, uh, he totally modified different versions of, of the book to be more inclusive. Mm-hmm. So he was trying, I do, I do think uh, Dickens saw the world empathetically, even though he was a bit of a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. I think he was a, I think he was portraying what the world was giving. I think the bigger question is how do we as an audience perceive what is written on a page? Mm-hmm. And how do we take that and um, create our own bias around what is there, what is given? This is something that is there. This is what is given to us. How do we perceive it? And how do we use that knowledge to go forth in the world? If you look at Fagin as a character, both in the book and in the musical, he was someone that worked out of necessity. Like he was a lower class human being that needed to survive. It's like watching, it's like watching the TV series, The Wire. Has anyone watched The Wire? I have best to be ever done because you get the complex nature of every single character there's no good or bad there's just what do i have to do to survive 
Mm-hmm. And I think that is what Fagan is. And he was resourceful. He, he knew who would be good pickpockets, but mm-hmm. he took care of them. Mm-hmm. He was a paternal figure and he, he gave them food and he gave them shelter. And yes, he, in the book, sold, sold Nancy and Oliver out. However, um, he was terrified of Bill Sykes. And if you look at the, if you look at the novel, there are way more villainous characters in this novel. There are. But they're, they too are still working out of necessity. Like if you look at, if you look at Bumble and Widow Corny, Widow Corny, they are the Macbeths. Yeah. Like they're the Macbeths of the piece. They're striving to get ahead. They were probably born into some kind of poverty and rose like that. They have, they have Malvolio syndrome. Yeah. That's, that's what I appreciate about Dickens and in most of his character portrayals is he doesn't, he complicates people. He doesn't judge his characters. He just lets them live on the page and it's up to the audience to create their own experience. Mm-hmm. of them but the uh, i think it's a i think we're looking at it through a contemporary lens and it, it it's we've changed we've changed we've changed mm-hmm. um, I, I will say the one thing the one hurdle we have is that the way fag has been depicted in media is very anti-semitic stereotypical like if you look at alec guinness's makeup for the role like they went full-on anti-semitic portrayal of a Jewish person with a very overpronounced nose, very uh, puffed up lips. Like it's very stereotypical. And when you look at the original production stills of a Ron Mooney or a, um, I forget who played him on Broadway, Clive something. Clive Clive Revel. Thank you. If you look at, if you look at the pictures of them, they also had that very distinct look uh, that was very alginacy of the of the large fake nose, the 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 sunken eyes, the big lip. Like I I, well, I think that's where we run into some hurdles is where the illustrations and the visual components of the character are very anti-Semitic. While maybe Dickens was trying not to be or was trying to be multi-leveled, you still have the visuals that people are, <laughs> that are going not great. It's it, it's it's kind of when you look at people playing Shylock. In Merchant of Venice, when you look at all the older yeah. productions, where it's like, once again, very anti-Semitic. It's that it's that stereotypical look they give the character. Where you look at more modern versions of Oliver now, where they try not to. But if you read the original stage directions in the script, it describes him uh, as as a hooked as a large hook-nosed man who comes out with a red beard and a um, fork, like uh, coming out of the smoky fire. So it's kind of like very devilish. Uh, from the first description in the script. Sure, absolutely. I'm not saying that it's not there. Yeah. I'm saying it's how we perceive it mm-hmm. as an audience. Yeah. Right? And what do you it's, have to say on this? It's our bias. Yeah. And the bias has continued mm-hmm. over time, which is, you know, speaking as the token Jewish trilogy here, you yeah. look at, at Fagin and you think, what jobs was he allowed to have in Dickensian England to Not make only. a living? And he's, you know, he could be a money lender, a tinker, or a, pickpo- a pickpocket. They mm-hmm. were very limited in what he could do mm-hmm. to make a living. And he is also the most intellectual of all of the characters in the musical. 
Yes. His lyrics are clever and smart. And mm. you can see this nimble brain working as he says, I'm reviewing the situation. Yes. And he's got talking about, I, I've got to pick a pocket or two. Mm -hmm. So yeah. looking at a guy who possibly be forwarding a, a stereotype, but he's also the smartest, most intellectual, mm -hmm. most um, uh, present character there. Yeah. Well I said. Agree. Well said. I, I totally agree with you. And I think yeah. he, he works out of necessity. And I think, you know, that is what Dickens was trying to do on the page. It was trying to say, this is something that's happening mm -hmm. in the streets of London. Yeah. And yes. maybe it's an observation and it's up to you as the reader, how you are going to um, empathetically engage this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now the problem is people have lost their empathetic engagement um, yeah. abilities. You know, the point, the point of creating art is mm -hmm. to put the observation out there mm -hmm. to have a discussion about it. Mm -hmm. And we are all going to come to the discussion with a different lens mm -hmm. and we have to find the middle ground and the place where we can share the experience. Yes, yes exactly. Period. I think this is a place where we can start to engage with empathy. Mm -hmm. It's Love it. Well said. I think I, I yeah. that's perfect. That's the perfect cherry on top of that. Yeah. Like segue we made because it had to be addressed. Um, and now we can move forward with with the rest of the production history. Well, I also think it's a I think it's a hurdle that a lot of people try to cover up, and I yeah. don't think it should be something you cover up. No, I don't think the Shylock problem is something you cover up. You have conversations about it. Yep. You have, you know, talkbacks about it. Yeah. You, you engage your audience in a new way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think it should be buried. I don't, I think it was written that way for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, he was trying to find that empathetic button within this character. And uh, Fagan is one of my favorite characters. I think he is the most intelligent person on stage. Lynn is, you're right. Yeah. Like he, he is the person that gets the soliloquy song. He is. And mm -hmm. uh, he gets the 11 o'clock number too. He gets them both. All the things. He gets all yeah. the things. Because mm -hmm. he's vital to, and it shows the gray of human nature. Mm -hmm. And the layers, that is the beauty of Fagan. Yes. I love mm -hmm. it. Well said. Well said. Okay. Yeah. So thank you. Perfect. So that was Bart's uh, first hurdle that he that he did, and that and the and, and so he so he found solutions and wrote Fagin wonderfully. Uh, so as I was saying, so in the early stages of writing, uh, Bart conceived the musical as a three act structure. Uh, so he took as we said, we, we took inspiration from David Lean's film as well as he was trying to add back and missing plot elements and missing characters from the book. So like characters like Rose. Um, who, who befriends Oliver. That was somebody who was trying to get back into the story, but ultimately she got cut early. Um, so, but there were certain major additions to the original Oliver Twist version that he wrote, which included the botched robbery sequence from the book, which is Oliver shot and wounded. Uh, Bart envisioned that instead of ro robbing some random house, like in the books, 
uh, Sykes and Oliver were going to ha uh, rob the Brownlow house, which results in Oliver getting wounded and then staying with Brownlow and recovering. However, this concept was dropped as it was deemed redundant as instead Oliver can just go home with Brownlow after the botched pickpocket sequence versus having him having to do the botched pickpocket sequence, go back to Fagin, do the robbery, and then go back with Brownlow again. So it was like condensed into one. Uh, the other concept that was dropped uh, was, the, was, was that in the books, it's Noah Claypole and Charlotte Sourberry that return and they're the ones that tip Fagin off about Nancy. Uh, this concept was deemed too convoluted and too uh, implausible, so that got cut as well. In most adaptations, the Noah Claypool, Charlotte Sourberry return is cut. And then the last uh, major change uh, was that in the original ending of, of, of Oliver Twist, the first draft, Oliver and Brownlow returned to the workhouse to present the children with treats and shillings, and to everyone's surprise, Fagin has taken on the new job as the parish beetle and has become a benevolent caretaker to the orphans of the workhouse. This was deemed too far off mark from the original novel, so that ending was scrapped by Peter Coe. He was like, not happening. What a lovely ending. It's very <laughs> against Dickens. It's a total Hollywoodized ending. You know, Fagin doesn't meet his his fate at Newgate, and you know, lovely. Yeah, um, but yeah, that Peter Coe scrapped that ending really quickly. Um, so Bart, uh, then, uh, so when you read his notes, he had certain things that he knew were going to happen right away. Like he said, like he always envisioned the play starting with uh, the "Please, sir, I want some more" scene. He knew that was going to be the starting of the show. So he wrote, opening song must include boys, bowls, and spoons. I love that. <laughs> and his first version of the song, uh, which would eventually become Food Glorious Food, uh, was uh, there's going to be a change in the workhouse. Uh, and then that song eventually morphed into uh, Food Glorious Food. Uh, once we got into the O Oliver draft of the script. There's not a crust, not a crumb, can we find, can we beg, can we borrow or cash? But there's nothing to stop us from getting a thrill when we all close our eyes and Oliver. Yes. I love that. Right? I, um, I, I, that number is pretty staggering. The Food Glorious Food? Yeah, because it, it, you know, it's very, it's very much like Les Mis in a way. It's got this very mechanical, mm -hmm. look, like these boys are not boys, they're just robots, they're part yeah. of the machine. Mm -hmm. At the end it's of the day, do 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 at the end of the day, you will love the day colder. And the shirts on your back doesn't keep out the chill. And the righteous are in past. It'll hear the little ones crying. And a plague is coming on fast, ready to kill. What a year it's a dying. At the end of the day, there's another day calling. And the sun in the morning is waiting to rise. And the wind cries on the sun. 
also a number is very down, similar to down, down, like yeah. And in the movie version, when they're coming down, oh, it's so there, good. it's so good. And you also see them working the 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 mill where they're just yeah. turning the wheel. Oh, it's fantastic! It's Love a it. great visual of that. So that's yeah. that one. Uh, the other songs that were a fixture from the first draft onward were "Where Is Love." which Bart originally, uh, initially envisioned having a dream ballet sequence for Oliver and his mother. Obviously, the ballet sequence did not make it far. It didn't make it to the old Oliver cut. Thank uh, God. <laughs> I know, right? Well, you can, but you can see where that's coming from with the Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah, the dream sequences. The other one, the, the, the other song was Boy for Sale, which was originally called Oys a Boys for Sale. Uh, which eventually got shortened to Boy for Sale. Much better. Yep. Fagan's Pick a Pocket or Two. That was a staple right away because that comes right out of the film, David Lean film. The scene is basically verbatim. Bill Sykes' song, My Name, which was originally called My Name Is, which was shortened to just My Name. And then uh, he also had ideas for other songs he wanted but didn't know what they were going to be yet. So his first one was an ingenious love duet between Oliver and Bette, which is Nancy's kind of younger friend that kind of tags along with her throughout the show. And that song became I Would Do Anything. I'd go anywhere for your smile, anywhere for your smile, everywhere I'd see. Would you like smile, show anything? Bart also noted he wanted a song for Nancy, a beery drinking song, and that song became Oom Papa. He then also wanted a He's My Man song for Nancy in act two of the show that he was going to have her sing. So he knew that song was going to be there and it was going to precede uh, the meeting between Brownlow and Nancy, where she ultimately chooses to help Oliver, where basically he says, can you leave him? And she does the, he's my man moment, which basically is what the reprise is in the musical, as long as he needs to be reprised. That's where that would have gone. I'll take his part
would have been the first spot you hear it because this was still the three act structure at the time. So that's where that song would have been. And then he also wanted a morning cry song. Uh, so this concept led him to write Who Will Buy. And the original Consider Yourself placeholder song for the first two drafts was a song called I'm Going to Seek My Fortune, which made it through Oliver Twist and Oh Oliver. But by the time we got to just Oliver, it had become Consider Yourself. Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself one of the family we've taken to you so strong. The song reviewing the situation was going to be was something Bart knew he wanted to do, where he wanted a, a scene where, where where an old man reviews the situation. But the song was originally going to be there isn't the prophet there used to be in crime. That was the original going working title of the song that he ultimately changed to reviewing the situation. I reviewing the situation I must quickly look up everyone I know title people with the station who will help me make a real impressive show I will own a suite at Claridge's and run a fleet of carriages and wave at all the duchesses with friendliness as much as is befitting on my new estate good morrow to you magistrate oh good I think I'd better think it out again there was also a cut concept song that he was going to have in the second act with Mr. Bumble and Noah Claypool called That Boy Was Born to Hang, which is a direct quote from the book as, as one of the governors of the orphanage tell Oliver that line directly. So Bart was going to take that line and make that into a song, but it was deemed unimportant to the plot, so they cut that song. Uh, the biggest writing change that this musical saw was with the character of Bet. So Bet in the original versions was supposed to be Oliver's love interest of the story. And she was going to be the, really the reason why he was wanting to stay in a life of crime, was basically to stay and help Bet. And ultimately at the end of the musical, the both of them were gonna get adopted uh, by Mr. Brownlow. And, and Bart was a big supporter of this. And ultimately, Peter Coe is like unimportant, focus on Nancy. She's the driving central female of the story. So slowly but surely, Bet's role got trimmed down and down and down until basically she's now become a highlighted ensemble member in, in, in the script. Yeah. She's definitely lost her edge, as it were. And Bart really fought against that, but ultimately he lost that fight. Which, to be honest, Oliver doesn't need a love interest. He's 10. He's 10 years old. What is that? I think it was meant to be like a young, innocent childhood love. Thing. Unnecessary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I and mean, that's why Peter Coe 
forced it to be cut. He basically took veto power, as it were, as the director and was like, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 we're cutting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the last three big hurdles that Bart faced when doing his writing for this was three things. One was how to gradually unfold the mystery of Oliver's family lineage, the circumstances surrounding Nancy's murder, and how to dispose of the likable villains of Fagin and the Artful Dodger. So the first issue was resolved by having the character of old Sally appear and she, and she was going to be, and she would confess that she had stolen the key clue to Oliver's lineage, which was the locket worn by his mother when she died. Uh, so that solved that problem. The other two issues are a little bit more complicated. For the second issue of Nancy's demise, uh, Peter Coe suggested that uh, uh, Bart either use Dodger or Fagin as Nancy's betrayer. But Bart was really against that. He wanted to keep them as likable villains, not culpable in a murder. Villains. We need to re. We need to re-engage their language. They're not villains. Sorry, they're. Mechan- well, Bart, exactly. Well, well, Bart didn't see them as villains, but Peter Co. described them as villains of the story. Well, sorry, Peter, you're wrong. There mm. you go. Next, yeah, Bart. But yeah, but Bart was against that, so that solution went out the window, and. Uh, so instead, basically, it's kind of left ambiguous, where kind of Bill Sykes just kind of follows Nancy and kills her. Because what we have is we have the uh, fine life reprise, where basically all Fagin says is keep an eye on Nancy Sykes, and Dodger, you keep an eye on on the both of them. And that's kind of gets them off stage, and Nancy goes off and does her thing, and then we cut to London Bridge, and basically it's there's no real plot moment of like how did they like how did Bill Sykes find out about this. They kind of just skirted the problem there, uh, and then the other, and then the, and then the other solution Peter Cook came up with for the third problem, which was how to get rid of, or, or how to resolve Fagin and Dodger, was to have Fagin, Sykes, and Dodger all getting arrested in the climax, but having Oliver rescue Dodger from the workhouse in the finale song. Uh, Bart vehemently refused this, as he did not want to see uh, Fagin being led away to prison. Uh, so, uh, uh, because he felt that after reviewing the situation, Fagan had had a change of conscience, therefore he did not deserve to be arrested. So, yeah, basically this was a big project of finding the balance between Dickensian work and musical theater tropes. So throughout the entire rehearsal process, Peter Coe and Bart went back and forth on this, and the set designer, Sean Kenny, right, Lynn? It's Sean Kenny. Yeah. Sean Kenny. So yeah. He also was a big influence on them too, because as he worked the set and basically refined the set with that revolving staircase, that helped refine Bart with what scenes and settings can I actually use. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, that's what they did. The musical Oliver premiered in the Western at the New Theater, now the Noel Coward Theater, on June 30th, 1960, and ran for 2,618 performances. So one of the longest running West End shows. Um, the original cast included Ron Mooney as Fagin, Georgina Brown as uh, Nancy, and Barry Humphreys in the supporting role of Mr. Sourberry, the Undertaker. And he is Dame Edna. Thank you. No. Yeah. yeah. You're joking. Yeah. Dame Edna? Yes. Dame, and then he moved, when they did the revival, he moved to playing Fagin. Yes, they bumped him up. That's crazy. Yeah. That's the roster, which... 
Wow. I mean, Gary Humphreys is fantastic. He's wonderful. He the other name we have here is that former professional boxer, Danny Swell, played Bill Sykes. And he went on to play the role for six years uh, in the West End, originating it on Broadway and then originating the role in the U.S. touring production. So, the, he, so this guy kind of became the definitive Bill Sykes for many people. Uh, fun fact, two actually. First is Phil Collins was an alternative uh, juvenile lead for the, for the original London production. So that's kind of what, that's what kind of where he got his theater roots was he was um, Oliver, apparently. He, he, he was one of the alternate Olivers that kind of came in during the run. And then the other big thing is the person who was in contention for the role of Bill Sykes uh, at the time uh, who Danny Swell beat was Michael Kine. The Michael Caine uh, himself was going to be Bill Sykes. And when he didn't get the role, Got he it. stated in an interview that he cried for a week because he failed to get this iconic part. Do you know who else was one of Fagin's boys? Who? Was Tony Robinson. Oh! Of Blackadder fame. There you go. Yeah. This must have had a lot of great people come through its door. A lot of, a lot of people. Yeah. So <laughs> here we go. Fun story now. So the show obviously moved to, to the U.S. and it started previews in Los Angeles. But uh, Sean Kenny's set was built in London and then shipped over on a boat to Los Angeles. And when the set arrived, they found that the original wood grain paint finish on the set clashed with the lighting. So what they had to do was they brought in two scenic painters to fix the set. So during the company's rehearsals prior to that first uh, evening's 8, uh, 8 p.m. show, they started painting. And the, 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 I have their names, their, paint, their painters' names were Wally <coughs> Reed and Hub uh, Brandon, and they glazed over the scenery while the cast rehearsed on the turntable, uh, stair platforms and bridge units. Uh, they continued painting while the cast took their meal break. Uh, before the overture, uh, they continued painting while the audience took their seats because there was no um, scrim. So they were just painting as audiences were coming into the theater. They continued painting during the show and even took their bow with the company at the end of, uh, of the night. And people <laughs> were so invested in these guys because they actually stayed after I, I, they took their bow and then went right back to painting. So as audiences were leaving, they were still painting. They finished the next day. This sounds noon. like our video component for Oh, What a Lovely Wolf. <laughs> right? But it gets better. So audiences were so enthralled with these two painters that they actually got a shout out in the review notices. Oh my God, that's awesome. And people actually started asking what happened to these two characters and why they were eliminated after the show's opening night. <laughs> that is nuts. Right? That's yeah. like... That's like noises off situation where it's like the set's not working. We gotta we gotta fix it while the audience is only coming in the door. Uh, yeah, I love it. I love that. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. So David Merrick returns to the plot once again as he was the producer that brought Oliver to the Broadway stage, and that version premiered at the Imperial Theater on June the sixth, nineteen sixty three, and it closed on November fourteenth. 1964 after 774 performances 
Georgina Brown and Barry Humphreys reprised their West End roles as Nancy and Mr. Sowerberry, respectively. However, Clive uh, Ravel uh, played Fag in replacing Ron Mooney. Uh, the production was a critical success and received 10 Tony nominations, including Best Musical, Best Actor in a Musical, Best Actress in a Musical, and Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Uh, it won the awards for Best Scenic Design, Best Original Score, and Best Direction, uh, Music Direction. Fun fact is Oliver has never won in, in any revival or original production the coveted Best Musical Award. It's never won it. In all the revivals it's, it's had, it's never one. Um, speaking of revivals, though, it was revived in 1977, 1983 in London, 1984 on Broadway, starring Patti Lupone as Nancy and Ron Mooney as Fagin. It only ran for like a number of performances. It did not get do well. But that was the performance that got her the role of Fontaine in Les Mis, because Cameron McIntosh saw that and went, she could be Fontaine. So he got her to sign up then and there. Uh, there. It was then revived in 1994 in London and then in 2009 in London. And the latter revi uh, revival in 2009 was actually tied in with the reality show called I Do Anything, which held a weekly competition by the creative team as they searched for their Nancy and their Oliver. Okay, so now we got a little bit more production history to go. I got two more small lines here. So first one is that this musical was turned into a film in 1968. And it was directed by Carol Reed and starred Ron Mooney as Fagin, Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes, Shan uh, Shani? 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 I think it's Shani. Oh. Uh, the, the lady who played Nancy, Shani, Shani, uh, Shani Wallace? Is yeah, Shani Wallace. Yes, Shani Wallace. Yeah, she played Nancy and Jack Wilde played the Artful Dodger. Mm. Yes, and this was the last movie musical to win Best Picture up until 2002 when Chicago Here is the last bit of production history is this musical is one of the few, like Annie, that spawned a sequel musical called Dodger! Exclamation point. <laughs> Set seven years after the events of the novel of Oliver Twist uh, by Charles Dickens, where Arpel Dodger has been sentenced to an Australian penal colony and has a romantic involvement with the character of Bet. Did not do yeah. that. It didn't last, <laughs> but there we go. I love that they shipped him off to Australia, though. That's it would have happened. Sure, yeah, great. Who wrote that masterpiece? It wasn't Lionel Bart? Uh, Dodger was written by Andrew Fletcher with uh, book and lyrics by David Lambert. Clearly, it didn't do well, and it's been lost to time. Nobody clearly knows. we've never heard of these people either, so there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, there we go. All so, right. We've all yeah. kind of talked about how we first came to this. I mean, I Lynn, didn't. I uh, didn't share my Oliver story. That's right. So What's your Oliver story? Well, I, I mean, I'm sure I watched the, the movie as a child. I'm you have positive. To. I, we watched every movie musical as children uh, in my household. Mm -hmm. But then um, at, when I was doing community theater, they did some songs from it. Mm -hmm. um, in a musical review that my whole family was part of called Music 10. Oh. Uh, and it was about all the musicals that the, the community theater group had done in their, their decade. Okay. And then when I was 13, grade eight, Grandview Public School, I played Nancy. Wow. I know. Wow. 
And I apparently I made a great corpse at the end. I didn't move a muscle for 20 minutes. So it was like a, a shining moment playing a corpse. But I loved it. I loved it. I think it was the beginning of my love affair with London. Right. I can believe that. Like, oh, we need, we need some pictures and video, Autumn. To see I know. I forgot to ask my mother. I'm very sorry. I forgot to ask her. I will see if I can find some. Well, this episode isn't coming up till June, so we got time. There, there's evidence. There is. There, I there, have there. an old beta copy somewhere. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, and I couldn't quite hit the high notes, so I was like, ah. very funny. <laughs> that oh. I remember very well. I love it. But yeah, like other than that, we Lynn and I both talked about our first experiences. This was my first show I performed in. Lynn, the first show you ever saw. I just want to say that I think it's really interesting that Lynn came in late to see the show and you were the late orphan. So ah. The simpatico <laughs> nature of that. It was that great. is true. And on that note, this is where we will have to end part one of our exploration of Oliver. We had so much fun uh, and had so many great discussions while breaking down this musical. There was just no way we could edit it into one episode. So we will continue next Friday with part two of our exploration of this Dickensian musical. Autumn, Lynn, and I all hope you enjoyed part one. And in part two, you can look forward uh, to us discussing our favorite songs, the songs we will either cut or skip. And we answer the big question of, should this musical be revived today? Uh, in the meantime, check out Lynn's online newsletter, The Slotkin Letter, which chronicles her theater going in Toronto and internationally. Listen to our theme music composer Brody Wells' latest track called Home Decor, which is a rap all about household furniture. You can find all his music on all the platforms, including Spotify and Apple Music. You can check out Autumn at Autumn DM Smith on all social media platforms, and please check out her fantastic theater company, Littlewood Smith, also on all social media platforms. Uh, you can check me out on social media at Mackenzie Horner. You can just find me while looking for the guy with the ginger hair. Uh, you can also check out the theater company I now work with, uh, which is called Cup of Hemlock. Uh, we are on all social media platforms at Cup of Hemlock. We will be posting on our YouTube page, our uh, in-depth breakdown reviews of theater shows we've seen including the most recently screened Stratford productions that are currently online uh, you also can check out our patreon page at before the downbeat uh, and you can get all our good good extra offerings such as movie musical commentaries our top 10 lists our theater news review show and all other good stuff like that uh, in the meantime we hope you have a great week and we're gonna Send you out with a great clip from Jerry Seinfeld himself, who does a great breakdown of all our feelings when a to-be-continued episode occurs. Until then, have a great time. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay inside. Bye-bye. Don't you hate to-be-continueds on TV? It's horrible when you sense the to-be-continued coming. You know, you're watching the show, you're into the story, and then there's like five minutes left and suddenly you realize, hey, they can't make it. <laughs> Timmy's still stuck in the cave. There's no way they wrap this up in five minutes. I mean, the whole reason you watch a TV show is because it ends. If I wanted a long, boring story with no point to it, I have my life. A comedian can't do that, see? I can't go, man walks into a bar with a pig under his arm. Can you come back next week?
And on our final note of this part one episode. Woo! Uh, yeah, exactly. Autumn and I have a very special announcement to make because uh, we have to announce the winner of our season one feedback survey. Yay! That's right. We had we had some great submissions from people. We had some great notes given. So thank you, everybody. Don't worry. We'll be doing another survey at the end of season two, which will I guess we can now dub our quarantine season since <laughs> the entire season is taking place between Zoom. We're uh, getting computers. a lot done. So we are getting we are getting a lot done. We are we are hustling our bustles. We've got uh, but, seasons already in the bag. <laughs> I know, Craig. So much editing to do. But on a positive note, we do have a winner to announce, and that is Mia Gannon from Ohio. Mia, Mia congratulations. Gannon. You won. Thank you so much for following us on Instagram, and we're so happy that you found us uh, and that you uh, are in that you gave us your feedback. We think that it was really nice to hear from you. Uh, we will contact you via email to give you your um, discount code for your $25 Amazon gift card or, or, or another gift card, maybe Apple, depends on what I can pick up at the store. But it'll be $25 of something like that that you will get a code for. Amazing. That to your own advantage. If it's, if it's Apple, then hey, you can go on iTunes and purchase some musical albums of your choosing, which is lovely. Way to uh, go, Mia. Thank you. All right, Mia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everybody who submitted uh, surveys. We really appreciated them. And yeah. we look forward to receiving more of those in season uh, two's feedback uh, yeah. survey at the end So of season two. So stay tuned for that. But Mia, uh, contact us either through Instagram, Facebook, whatever. And we'll contact you uh, through email uh, to uh give you the code but thank you again everybody and see you next time bye, -bye. bye.